This morning we pick up again in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I invite you to turn there. We're going to be reading a portion of Scripture here, and then we are going to try to summarize what we've been working on for the last two or three weeks, uh, because we are coming to the end of a sentence again, to an end of a concept here that we really want to uh, entail. And then I'm going to take this a little bit different direction than maybe you're accustomed to. We are going to be looking at two other passages, uh, Paul's writings that correlate with Peter's here. And I'm going to try to bring in some application, um, which I haven't done for several months. In fact, uh, for probably six months, uh, seven months, I haven't really addressed it directly. And I want to do that today um, because of the nature of, of our times and to really bring some of this into, into application because of the questions that have been asked me, frankly, uh, not only from some of you, but from many of uh, my friends, even internationally. And so we want to address some of that. And I find this passage to be a very strong one, and it has really impacted me in, in understanding how to address our times. And so we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, picking up in verse 13. It says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here, in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as is of lamb, without blemish and without spot. And we're going to stop there this morning in our reading. We're going to really focus in on, again, verses 13 and into verse 17. But we're going to be referencing some of verse 19 as well this morning in trying to draw this together. We've talked about the necessity of girding up the loins of our mind, that God calls us not to an experiential or emotional uh, attachment and, and uh, basis for our faith, but to an informed basis of our faith, that we are to understand the scriptures, that we have this in writing, that our faith is not based upon irrationality, but super-rationality. Rationality that is not from earth, from below, but is from above. And God is not irrational, but he is beyond our experience. That is in terms of, of what we see and touch and hear, and yet not beyond our knowledge. And so we are called upon to gird up the loins of our mind, to engage it, that this is in, in stark contrast to what the world has, and the world has ignorance. We're going to see that word used in this passage and in many other passages that refer to the condition of man. Why are they steeped in sin? Why are they steeped in hatred? Why are they steeped in violence? They are steeped in these things, and the Bible attributes that to their ignorance. Ignorance of God, ignorance of truth, ignorance of salvation. That these are the things they are, that they are trapped in. They are trapped in that ignorance, sometimes by their own choice. And we talked about that several weeks ago, about choosing to be ignorant, that I just don't want to know that information. And yet we find here that we are called upon uh, to draw upon the knowledge of God, to be informed about who he is, to be informed also about what sort of salvation we have and what it is that has redeemed us. And verse 18 starts off with that word, knowing. And so often in Scripture, we are called to know these things. You are, you are expected to know it, and then your life is built upon that knowledge foundation. Not how you feel about it, but what you know about it. And this is critical to understanding this, this, the call of God here in these verses that we looked at last week. That calling was to be holy as I am holy. And we talked about what that meant and what it does not mean. And again, I want to review that a little bit for us because it is critical to understanding it in other passages as well who use it in the same manner. This is quoted out of Leviticus. We looked at that last week. And again, we are not coming to this verse saying, Be holy means being perfect, nor is being holy being sinless. But being holy, as 
God is holy is to be separate, to be distinct, to be set apart from. That as God is transcendent, that he is above us, that he is different from us. He is fundamentally distinct. That we can look at him and recognize there is no one like him. He is God and he alone is God. There is a uniqueness there. That this is the, the core understanding of holiness. Certainly, it includes the concepts of being righteous and being just and, and being uh, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Certainly, all of those are entailed in that. But the word itself really draws us to the idea of being set apart from. That he is set apart, that he is the creator and everything else is creature or creation. That he alone has that Place. He is set aside. And when Israel was instructed in that, that there is this uh, sacrificial area, and then you can go into the holy place, and then you can go into the holy of holy places, a place that is set apart, that no one else could enter but one man, and then only once a year. And, and uh, the, the high priest, who himself was to be the holiest of the holy people of the, of the priesthood. And so we saw that term used in Leviticus. He's set apart for service, and he has a different uh, expectation on his life because of being set apart to this purpose. And so we find over and over again the concept of holiness is to distinguish, to be set apart, that we are called to be different and not we already know we are different from God, though we carry it, we are image bearers. We know that he is still God, that we are still creatures. We do not attain to his place. That is Mormon doctrine, that we can become gods. That is not what we aspire to, uh, because then God is not holy, holy, holy. He ceases to be that, because we can attain to him. Then, he can, then he's no longer distinct. And so what is our call to be holy? Our call is to be set apart to him. And this came out in Leviticus, that we are holiness to the Lord. That is, we are set apart not from creation, but from those who are opposed to God, that we are now for God. We are set apart to his service, to his following, to his kingdom, that that now defines us. It is the very Essence of what we are now. We are the Lord's. I am holiness to the Lord. I am set apart to him. Um, do I carry along with some imperfections in that? Oh yes, I certainly do. Uh, but they are forgiven. They are atoned for. They are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what we receive from salvation. To make, uh, not that we walk in our own righteousness, but we are made righteous through the wonderful power of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are made righteous, not just given a blank slate through forgiveness, but we are declared righteous. And so we are justified and before God. And now we are set apart to him. We belong to him. And that is the concept of holiness. Not, and now, uh, should it be reflected in our conduct? Well, obviously, it's, uh, verse 15 says that uh, you also be holy in all your conduct. That, but that conduct is not that we are going to have this rigid walk of perfection. Uh, because that's not reality. Not in this flesh. And Paul describes that, that war that goes on between our flesh and our spirit that we want to do right, but we don't. Uh, and so it is not perfectionism that we're talking about here. We're talking about in our conduct, setting aside our life for God. That it is to him. I am dedicated to him. During this coming week, a lot of people are going to be making resolutions, and I'm all for that. I'm all for making resolutions. Um, and then as you uh, don't fulfill those resolutions, you can recognize how puny and pathetic we are without Jesus Christ in our life. Um, but even for the Christians, I believe we should make these resolutions really on a daily basis. Today, I want to dedicate myself to holiness to the Lord, to be set apart for God. That when I go to work, I'm working not as everyone else works. I am working unto God. As I go and engage my family, my home, my home is, is, is not just for my own creaturely comforts. It is dedicated to God. That my entertainment should be dedicated to God. Boy, that's a dangerous one, isn't it? Mm. 
How do you do that? Well, that's going to have to be addressed. And so when we talk about our conduct, certainly it is engaged in this. This is what we want to focus in on because we really skipped a phrase last week in understanding holiness, and that was in verse 14. And then we also want to pick it up again at the end of 17 and see it again in 19 in our text. But we're going to draw into some other text to help us in this. And so we find that as we are called to holiness, it, it involves our conduct. Not that I try to walk rigidly according to a set of rules or laws that make me holy. Because then we become like that rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep the law. And he probably says, well, I've done that since my youth. And his claim was to righteousness, self-righteousness. This is the claim of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. They claim to be that. And that's why, and so Jesus penetrates into his heart. Well, let's see um, who your God is. Let's see what you're serving. Let's find out what you're dedicated to. And Jesus Christ put his finger on it very quickly because he knew the hearts of men. And he says, well, you're pretty much dedicated to your wealth, so go give it away and come follow me. It wasn't just give it away, by the way. It wasn't just get rid of your money. Uh, it, it was give it away and come follow me. And the young man went away sad. Because he had great wealth and he was attached to it. He had dedicated himself to probably the acquiring of it and the keeping of it. And so we are called to uh, certainly have it impact our hearts first. And then it should be reflected in our conduct in our life. And the way Peter says that in verse 14 is that we are to be as obedient children. That we are um, going to be in our conduct holy because we are children of the Holy One. And while we didn't focus on conduct last week, we wanted to focus on the concept of being separate. We obviously see the necessity of our understanding that we are holy should be reflected in what we do. It should be reflected in our conduct in many ways. Not that I'm seeking out perfection, I'm seeking out that which is distinct. What is godly in my speech, in my attitude, in my face, my countenance is the old term for that, in my expressions, in my work ethic, in, my, in, in all of this, am I projecting godliness? Am I seeking to be godly in this ungodly world? And it is becoming, uh, <laughs> it's actually becoming less and less difficult to make that distinction because the world is just going into deeper and deeper ungodliness. Unfortunately, the church is just lagging along behind where we could take a stand very powerfully and be a, a, a powerful beacon for, for God and for righteousness, uh, we simply tail along beside, behind them a few, it used to be a few decades, now it's really just a few months, and pretty soon you have churches uh, conforming themselves to this world. And the, obviously, John, or 1 Peter 14 tells us that we're not to conform ourselves to our former lusts. Those were your times of ignorance. So I want to tie this all together. The concept that we are to be holy as he is holy, separate, distinct, dedicated to God, and tied in with what we ought to be doing with our minds, that we are uh, called to gird up the loins of our mind, to engage in knowing the truth of God's word. And so let's look at this as Paul describes it in a couple of passages, using some of the very same terms and certainly the same concepts. Let's go back to Ephesians, and I just want to lay this foundation before we get into the application today. Ephesians, if you'll turn there with me, and we're going to be in chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, picking up in verse 17, and we're going to be reading 17 through 24, Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Uh, New King James reads this, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. 
having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Holiness set aside. You see the distinction between righteousness and holiness at the end? All these themes, these are identical themes that we see in 1 Peter 1. They're identically there, aren't they? They're expanded for us a little bit, a few more verses. They're given the, the character of Paul, but they are the identical themes that we just saw in 1 Peter 1. We saw that our former way of life was a way of ignorance. And that ignorance wasn't because the truth wasn't available to us. It is because of the blindness of our heart. We didn't want it. We didn't want to learn it. We didn't want to see it. We didn't want to embrace it. And that ignorance led to a kind of life, a futile life, a futile thinking. It led us to lewdness. It led us to uncleanness. It led us to greediness. And wow, is our world filled with that today. Because they have rejected the knowledge of God. And so we ought to be of a different ilk, a different kind. We ought to be holiness. That is, we should be set apart from that kind of society. Not that I don't engage them with the gospel, but that doesn't, I don't look in my life like they look in their life. I should be distinct from that. They should not see these terms or even the, the concepts of them there. They should not see us living with futility in our thinking, going around and, and wringing our hands like, like we have no knowledge of God that he is the Lord of all the earth. Just as we should not be grieving as those who have no hope, our grieving should look differently, our living should look differently, our thinking should be different, and, of course, our conduct should be different. And so we put on the new man, Paul says here, but notice that it talked about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That this is built up not by an emotional commitment to make a resolution at a certain time of year because in response to a certain sermon, but because of what I understand about God, what I understand about Jesus Christ, what I understand about my salvation. Because I know these things to be true. Because I have dedicated myself to the truth, now here is how I should conduct myself. It is a very humbling thing because now I'm not measuring truth by what I am comfortable or uncomfortable with, what I like or dislike, what is popular or unpopular. Um, no, that doesn't <laughs> affect me at all. All those things are rubbish. They're garbage. I wash them away. That's my old world. My old man used to care about those things. Now it is centered upon what is it that brings glory to God? What is it that is a testimony to others? What is it that impacts people? They say, wow, you're different. And we talked about the, the Amish last week and, and their choice to be different, to be distinct, to be separate as a testimony. And it's phenomenal to see how people respond. Do some people ridicule them? Uh, yes. But it's also interesting to see how many people admire them and acknowledge that they have made a stand where others have not. Oh, that we would have that as our desire. And what does it require? That our mind, the spirit of our mind, that is our thoughts, be renewed by the Holy Spirit, by his working. Let's go to another passage of Paul just to see this tied into this passage. That's Romans chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and following. And again, a passage you should be very familiar with. You should have it memorized. If not, I would challenge you to do that this week. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, verse 1, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, 
acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And we can go on and look at the functioning of that within the body of Christ in the next passage, in the following verses. Uh, But we want to focus in on the foundation of that. Do you see the same themes? We are to be holy, set apart to God. And then that's going to impact our conduct. It's going to be reflected in that, that we are going to be obedient children. And we're going to come back to that. I want to jump into that right now, but I can't. We'll get to that here in a moment. Uh, But look at the necessity. By Instead of being conformed to the world, instead of being like them and worrying about fitting in there, We are to be transformed into something very different. That's what holiness is. He has used the word holy in verse 1. He has defined it in verse 2. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed in our lives. How? By the renewing of your mind. That it is new thinking that is where this starts. It is by by a whole different perspective on what's going on around me, about what the priorities of life are, about why am I here? Questions that the world doesn't really want you to talk, think about. They don't want you investigating those things, as we're going to see in a little bit. They, they don't want you to search out the truth. They want you to stay in ignorance, because then you will stay in your conduct under their thumb. To do what is wicked, to do what is greedy, to do what is, what is perverted, to do all these things that, that God abhors. This is the condition Satan wants us to live in, a compromising one. To conform ourselves to the world when the Bible says transform yourselves by changing your thinking first. We need to recognize what we are looking at and evaluate it, not by worldly terms, Too often, pastors are out there evaluating church growth movement by what works. Well, frankly, they're doing it by looking at what, conforming themselves to the world's concepts of what works, which means that you have big buildings, big attendance, and big offerings. This is not in God's word. By that, by the way, by that measure, every one of the Old Testament prophets was a complete failure. Well, maybe not Jonah, but... (laughs) He had all those Ninevites, but he didn't want them. Kind of interesting. Jonah thought he failed (laughs) because he won the Ninevites. So we're looking at the world, saying we want the world, the world's measure, because we think like the world. We have conformed ourselves to the world's conduct because we have not transformed our mind into biblical truth. What does it mean to be holy, to be set apart to God, to be different? And it begins by a completely different mindset. What is our philosophy regarding why we are here and how we are engaged in this world? And Paul to the Romans, Paul to the Ephesians, Peter to the the scattered saints (laughs) uh, tell us that we need to change our thinking. Your thinking needs to be filled up. It needs to be saturated with the truth of God's word. Let's begin there. It needs to be saturated with the truth of God's word. If you want to be obedient children, living with a mindset of fearfulness uh, toward God, and not that I'm afraid of God, but I am fearful about what it means to be holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. That that's who I'm engaging. I'm not engaging Big Daddy in the sky. I am engaging the Lord of all the earth. And so I'm going to come to him with a level of respect and and awe and some genuine fear. His expectations are pretty high. And if you've learned anything out of the Old Testament, it's that when you don't meet his expectations, there are consequences to pay that you don't want to pay. So there should be some fearfulness. And Peter talks about that uh, in 1 Peter 1, uh, 15. At the end of the day, we're going to conduct ourselves in fear of the Lord. 
of what our redemption is all about, that we focus our mind there on who is God? What is he like? And why am I so disinterested in finding out more about him? Because that disinterest in and of itself reveals something about your thinking. Because if you're not interested in knowing God better and more, then you aren't really dedicated yourself to him. You're dedicated to a lot of other things. You are conformed to this world. You have not been transformed. And so we should have this desire. And this is what Paul says. Uh, let's go back to Ephesians. Paul says this to them in Ephesians um, in verse 20 and 21. But you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. You claim Jesus, but have you really listened to him? Has he really impacted you so deeply that your mind has been renewed? You have a whole new perspective on everything. That it's not about conforming to this world at all. It's about being transformed into being a holy one, a set-apart one dedicated to God. Is your mind dedicated to God? Because that's the core. This is the foundation of our conduct. I can sit here and preach conduct, 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 and others have in the past, and we have legalistic churches that focus in on that, and, and I can sit here and try to impose rules upon our church. You can't come in the door unless this, 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 and I refuse to do that. God doesn't do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. God says, transform your mind. Renew it. And your conduct will come into conformity with a transformed mind instead of conformity with the wicked world. I want to convince you to live for God, not confine you into living for God. Because that's how God works. He does not come in and manipulate the will of men. He comes in and allows us free access to his knowledge, and then free determination whether we want to live according to it and accept it. And that's why the blindness of their heart makes men ignorant. They choose not to know him, even though it is plainly evident, Romans 1 says, in all creation. But we who have claimed to have heard him and been taught by him, Paul is even dealing in the Ephesian church, saying, if indeed that's true. So let's examine our, as the prophet says, consider our ways. Is that true? Has Jesus Christ transformed my thinking? Is it renewed? Do I think about things totally different? Do I have this perspective, or I am still chasing after and conforming myself to the philosophies and to the interests, to the, to the thinking of this world? Does that define me, or does Jesus Christ define me? I can't answer that question for you because I'm not in your mind. I can only work inside of mine. And even that's kind of frightening sometimes. Um, so I have responsibility. Please notice, both in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and here, that this is a continuing process. It is, a, is, it a, it is renewing, not renewed. That means that you have to keep doing this, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. It is not something that, well, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I got that done, my mind is renewed, and now I don't have to engage. No, it doesn't work that way. This is a process that you must be engaged in and be vigilant at all the time. Because all the time, we have the evil one who wants to captivate our minds and draw us away, first of all, in our thinking. And then it will reflect in our conduct. And I see it. When, when Satan can get me to start worrying, to start fretting over things, I know he's trying to get a foothold in there so that I don't live a life of faith, but a life conforming to the, my former self. Where I think I control everything instead of letting him control things in my life. Allowing that to happen. And so we have this necessity that we persist in that. That we are renewed day by day in my thinking. 
that I need to take time each day to be engaged with his truth, to remind me that my life is not going to be like the world's. I want to be like his truth, and Jesus Christ is truth. That I'm going to read about it, I'm going to engage it, I'm going to meditate upon it, I'm going to memorize it, and, and I'm going to uh, put it into practice then. You cannot sit there and put into practice that which you have not dedicated your mind to. Oh, we renew our mind day by day. Transforming it to be holy, set apart to God, dedicated to Him. And so this is what is entailed as we go back to 1 Peter and we bring Paul's concepts and, and God's concepts given through Paul in Romans and in Ephesians into here. We see that we are not to conform ourselves to former lust. That was back when I was ignorant by choice or not because somebody withheld the truth from me. Uh, think about that. That's your responsibility. We're going to talk about that here shortly. And so we have, uh, you're called to be holy, set apart, not uh, away from the world. You are still in the world, but you're not of the world, Christ says. And so we conduct ourselves to the time of our stay here in fear of what we know. Now, why do children obey? We would like our children to obey because they love us and honor us and want to fulfill the God's instruction to them that uh, to obey their parents, to honor them, uh, for this is right, uh, and because they can have a long life on earth, uh, which is becoming very much less and less appealing, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. Um, We would like to believe that, but we all know that obedience at some level is really driven by fear in our children. We understand that. We understand that hopefully they will get past that period of obedience because of fear, and that it will become obedience for other reasons. But that's why we use corporeal discipline, and it's not because we don't love them. Uh, in fact, the Bible says, whom a father loved, he disciplines uh, every, and so if he's your son, you discipline him. He's not your son. Well, okay, good. You know, good luck with that. Um, because I love you, I'm not going to let you get away with that. I'm going to discipline you. And for a child, you can tell when they're going to obey because of fear and not love. It's not because they love you. It's because they're afraid. Okay, I had to do that in the nursery today because I got a grandson in there who's too used to my voice, I think. Um, and... Uh, He's a tool around, and he made me get out of the rocking chair. Now, when you make me get out of the rocking chair, there is no hope. Okay? As long as I'm talking in the rocking chair, you, it's your choice. You have an opportunity. It is privilege. It's opportunity to choose to obey. Once I get out of that rocking chair, there is no, I'm going to run it. And, that, and I see him, as soon as he gets me, sees me get out of the rocking chair, he runs to try to do what he was told to do. Too late. Too late. You're doomed. Because I got out of the rocking chair. You see, in his mind, the only time to obey was when you are in jeopardy of being punished. But he didn't realize how close he was to that point. I don't give a lot of warnings. You know, once, twice, third time I'm out of the chair and you're doomed. You know, now he's in the corner. Ooh! And he obeyed, he, wanted to, he would only obey out of fear of being punished. And I'm not sure why that's such a big deal because it really doesn't hurt to just stand in the corner, but they always cry. I don't know why. It's like, if they were my kids, I'd say, I'm going to give you a reason to cry if you want to cry in the corner. That's all you had, so. We know that. We recognize that in children. And certainly, God is willing to deal with you on that level. For the immature Christian, you need that. But that fearfulness, as you grow and mature and start to see, hey, my parents love me, they provide for me, and you get to know your parents better and better. And yes, all of our parents here who have all these little kids, you have the hardest job on the planet. I'm going to say that all the time because that is the hardest job. Multiple preschool children. So endure it and, and just recognize that I'm all for you and I'm praying for you, but you have the hardest job. 
they will grow. And if you do your work really consistently and you demonstrate your love for them by disciplining them, then eventually they'll figure out, oh, you know, my mom and dad love me. They provide for me. They care for me. I should be obedient because obeying them seems to work out pretty good, and they'll figure it out eventually. And then they'll do it maybe for some selfish motives, and, oh, please don't tap that as the way to obey. If you obey, I'll pay you. That is a horrible reason to obey. You are feeding greediness. That's the old world. I don't obey God because I want something from God. I already have gotten so much from God is why I obey him. This should be the motivation for the Christian life is a statement of thanksgiving. This should, be the, this should become the motivation of godly children is I'm going to obey mom and dad because they've already given me so much. Not because I want more. If you obey, I'll give you this. When your parent says that to you, they're at their wit's end and shame on you, child. Because they've already given you life. They've given you a place to live, clothing, food, because you're still alive, and hopefully knowledge of God and the truth. And so obedience becomes an act of thanksgiving. It's a way of, of giving back to someone who's already given you so much. I don't expect that of preschoolers. I don't expect that really of six-year-olds, but I sure expect it from eight-year-olds. I expect them to start to understand what life is like. And I try to teach my children at five and six years old what it means to be in my house by saying, you can leave my house anytime. There's the door. And I would send them out it at five years old. You say, you sent your kid out on the streets at five years old. Yes, I did. Because a five-year-old can understand. And then he goes out and sits on the curb around the corner <laughs> and cries because he lost his home. Oh, now you know which kid it was. <laughs> and he wasn't sure he was allowed to come back. So I went out and got him. And I said, well, you can come into my house, but this is my house. And it's your privilege to be here. I don't owe it to you. You owe me obedience. This is what we have to understand about God. He's already done so much for us. We don't make deals with God. I'll obey you if, 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 if. No, I'll obey you because, because, because you've already done so much for me. As obedient children who have a knowledge, the more we know about what God has already done for us, the more we want to obey him, the more we want to serve him, because we realize I have so much to, to be thankful for, and, and so little ways to express that, that the best ways for me to do that is to be obedient to him, to do what he asked me to do, and then I find out that those, those burdens that he puts on me are light. And easy, and actually for my benefit, all along anyway. Now, I want to spend some time, I told you I was going to make some application. We've, we, we've investigated the passage, and I have many people with grave concerns about what's going on, not only in our nation, by the way, it's all over the world, um, that are concerned too. I have a lot of my international people asking me, what is going on with this election? Because whatever happens in the United States is going to impact us hugely. And I, a lot of people say, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I want to just share with you, from God's word, what is a Christian's response to a world going into turmoil, into chaos? And my wife herself comes and says, well, what can we do? What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? Because the corruptness and the evil and, the, and we see what's going on around us and, and seems beyond us and and then we have these other voices coming in and say, well, we got to get guns and ammo. we got to get places to run and hide in. We have to get all of these preparations and we have to prepare ourselves for this kind of engagement. And we know from God's word this is not what we are called to do. So what do we do? And this passage, I think, is the key to understanding what our responsibility is. And the fact is that evil one knows 
that the real answer to what's going on is the truth. The way to expose evil is with truth, not with better weaponry, okay? With the truth. This is why we have seen them seek to assault the truth. Our founding fathers understood the necessity of people having access to truth. And that's why they established a free press. So that people could have access to the truth. So the government could not limit information getting into the hands of people. Because they understood something that each of these passages talks about, and that is that ignorance is the greatest danger to any society. Now, we are. The, this is the third day of Christmas. Um, and yes, my family celebrates 12 days, so we're going to have our culmination on the 6th of January, Three Kings Day, Epiphany. So this is the third day of Christmas, and so our family is all about Christmas movies, and of course we have... Um, no, I just keep saying Scrooge, but it's not Scrooge. Christmas Carol, there we go, thank you. And, and the most powerful image there is here is ignorance and want. And what does he tell you to beware of? Beware of especially the boy. The boy is ignorance. And so our founding fathers understood the necessity that if we want to have a, a, a society and a government and authority that is responsible and answerable to its people, it has to have a free press. That is, you have to have access to the information to expose corruption. And it is no, it's not happenstance that what we are engaging now is the smothering of information. So what are we called to do? We are called to communicate truth. This is the answer. That when the world, forces in this world want to bring chaos and instability, that what brings stability, what brings order, is the truth. Now I can look at political truth, I can look at economic truth, I can look at all these things, but fundamentally we want to approach people with the truth of God's word of Jesus Christ. This is their need. And they can have willful ignorance regarding that, but it cannot be our fault for allowing them to claim ignorance because we wouldn't tell them. Our response is not to go out into a hidey hole. It is not to weaponize ourselves with the things of this world and to conform ourselves to that thinking, but to think radically different and to recognize that these who are the enemies of, of stability are really... Ignorant. They are ignorant. And it is their thinking that is wrong. And it needs to be renewed. And while I can have very convincing arguments, fundamentally to renew thinking, to transform thinking, is the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. Because once we begin there, now we can begin to talk about it. But until you are set apart from this world, until you are made holy by the power of Jesus Christ, um, information can be ignored. And they are ignoring it. So what is the world doing to our thinking? Consider with me for a while that this is not just a recent phenomenon, but this is a calculated approach, philosophy, that we have been inundated for at least 40 years. At least 40 years. Possibly more. And here is the simple approach. If we want people to think less, we, approach, we attack their minds. And the war that we have been engaged in or disengaged from has been a war for the minds of generations, at least two. First of all, a, a chemical assault I'm convinced of on the minds. We have an explosion of 
medical debilitation of the mind. Not only among the old, but among the young. In our family, we have seen it. Now we can talk about the causation of that, but it is certainly, since it's an explosion in modern times, that we have all of these uh, things happening, and we have to conclude that there was something in our environment purposely happening. Secondly, not only do we approach it chemically, but we approach it by numbing the mind. The Bible says to gird up the loins of our mind, to engage the mind, to renew our thinking, to renew our minds, to transform ourselves by thought, by dwelling on our knowledge, by learning. And it is a simple thing to simply disengage people's minds from the learning process. For 20 years, I've had college professor saying these high school graduates are coming to college and are miserable students because they do not know how to think. Why? Why don't they know how to think? Because their minds have been numbed. They have been disengaged. And this is why I challenge you. And you say, well, what disengages the minds? And, and we talked about this but in, in, I think two weeks ago, um, that, that we have uh, movies and television that are rewiring our brains, that are disengaging us, that we are being numbed and we are being distracted into non-thinking. That our children can't even engage for 20 minutes without um, extensive videos and, and multimedia to just think through something. I cannot engage these serious concepts in a three-minute video or in a meme. They require thought, and thought requires time and investment to really work through the process of logic and what it takes and learning. Learning happens, but what they have done is they are imprinting things on brains by turning off the mind, by disengaging it. The Bible calls us to gird up the loins of our mind, to engage it, and to filter what we see and to transform our thinking. But our young people are not even capable of doing that because they cannot keep their focus and attention for more than a few seconds because we've been flashing images in front of them every two seconds, flashing a new image, a new image, a new image, a new image, a new image to keep them from thinking, to keep their minds from developing the way God would have them develop. Oh, that we would be careful in seeing the war that is happening upon our mind. And it is no, <laughs> it is no accident that here, towards the end of this process of, of shutting down the thinking of, an, of the world, that we have formal education taking a major hit. This is, this is no accident that our children aren't in school, that our school systems, by and large, have failed or are continuing to fail, that, that our uh, content that we are teaching continues to diminish. It is because the war is being won by the enemy because we didn't know we were involved in it or dismissed it and became complicit in helping the enemy by our neglect of our minds. And now, when we are so far down this road, we come and throw up our hands, oh, it's not right that our children should not be in school, it's not right that they shouldn't get an education. And it was like, well, they haven't really been getting a very good education for decades. You just haven't been waking up to it. We've really used the school system as daycare. And I know we have teachers here, and they can attest to that, I think. I don't think they're going to fight me on that. 
that parents haven't invested themselves in saying, I want my child's mind to be well-developed, that they can think critically and evaluate things and discern. These concepts, these, these principles of developing the mind, these words even, the very words are foreign to them. And yet the Bible tells us the beginning, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of the Holy One. It is in our minds where we begin to trust in Jesus Christ. It is in our children's minds that they begin to learn and to know what God is and who He is and what He has done. And it is education that has always gone with the gospel. Everywhere the gospel has gone, education has gone. Because we understand that it is the mind that must be renewed day by day. It is our learning about Christ that will lead to obedience, that will lead to this conduct that is becoming of saints that is so different from the world. Oh no, it's no mistake that our minds, your minds, because I said (laughs) at least 40 years ago, at least 40 years ago, most of the people in this room are not 40 years old. So that includes you. That your mind has been under assault to be conformed to a world by disengaging it in multiple ways so that you would not invest yourself in the time and the attention that it takes to study. You see, I was confronted with study very early. This is why we use it with our Word of Life children. The Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, understanding the Word of Truth. The finest engagement that you can do for your mind is to study. I am cons- and I consider the second finest engagement for your mind is to meditate on what you've studied. Because meditation allows you to bring it into your conduct. And so we should be not just reading God's Word. We have a reading schedule back there. We encourage you to get it, to read through the Bible in a year. Get the volume in there, and you need that. But you also need the study. More than this, just me leading you in a study, you need to be in God's Word. To meditate upon it, to let it resonate and to echo into your mind and and then come out in your conduct. Again and again, the Bible calls us to this. So what is our response to a world that's gone haywire? Speak the truth in love. Teach. It is their choice to learn or not learn. But we need to engage in the truth telling. And when the world starts shutting down those avenues that you think are the way to communicate truth, then you need to find others. Ultimately, the ones you have primary responsibility for are those that you know face-to-face. To To not avoid the, the, the two things you're not ever supposed to talk about. Doesn't that bother you? It should bother you the two things you're not supposed to talk about with people. Don't talk about religion or politics. The two things that matter maybe the most in every conversation (laughs) you're supposed to avoid. Why? Why? Ask yourself that. Why? Why do we want to discuss anything of any substance? We can talk about sports forever because it's unsubstantial. It's it's pointless. It's entertainment. We can talk about our favorite TV show, but it's pointless. It has no substance to it. We can talk about those things. We can talk about the weather. That's pretty pointless too, try to tell you, because you can't change it much, and it just is what it is, and we can converse about it. And um, when are we going to engage people with something of substance to challenge their mind with the truth? Paul says, this is what I came to you with. I came to you speaking the truth. I came to you speaking of Jesus. What is our response? Our response as a church and as individuals should be that we want to flood every environment that we have access to with the truth of God's word.
prophetic truth, salvific truth, doctrinal truth. They need it all. We do not need Christians building up giant stores of ammunition. We need Christians studying God's word and communicating to everyone they can, every way they can, while there's still time, while we still can. This is what is required of us. This is what transformation happens, is when we engage the mind. And so this introductory thing we we handled several weeks ago, three weeks ago in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind. We saw the application of it now, and we come to its culmination. We bring it together that we want to be separate, but we need to engage our minds first. And if we aren't willing to do that, um, how can you expect these poor people out there who, have, who are the victims of the war on their minds, how can we expect them if we aren't willing to discipline our minds with the truth? Have we really learned Jesus? You claim to. Have you really learned him? Because he is the truth. And he should transform your thinking and then, with transformed thinking, say, I want to just be fully obedient. I want to be as obedient as I can to God's word. And there, then all my conduct becomes accessible to God. None of it is hidden away from my own private enjoyment. It's all God's. Oh, that we would be obedient children because God has done so much for us already. But in our immaturity, maybe we just need to know that God is getting off the throne and taking a step in our direction because we're not obeying. And that's a frightening concept. But he will discipline his sons because he loves them. I prefer obedience because of good reasons. But obedience is necessary for any reason. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you for all you accomplished for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, as we study it more and more, as we meditate on it more and more, as we discover how much you've done for us, Lord, we realize how ungrateful we really are. Lord, help us to follow your word by transforming and renewing our minds. Lord, we know this is hard work and we're not very good at it. We need your help. We thank you for your spirit, for your word, for your people, for our church, to help us transform our thinking to be more like yours than this world's. But Lord, we are in this world. It has a great influence and you know that on us. So we ask for your help. That we might stand fast in the turmoil of these days and the certain greater turmoil of days to come. That we might stand firm, unshaken. Because we know your truth. We know your son. We have learned him. We have set up, we have been set apart away from it, from the world, from our old lusts, our old conduct, our old lifestyles. And we're serving you. Lord, help us to serve you in boldness. And then, Lord, help us to engage this world. Our hope is not in it, our hope is in you and in your kingdom coming. You know that. We are looking for your coming. We long for it. We are finished with this place, but you are not, and so we cannot be. So Lord, help us to engage this world, not to save it from the certain destruction that is coming, but 
to save individuals in it from eternal destruction. Lord, help us to communicate Christ to those that we encounter. That our conversation might turn quickly, earnestly, to the truth. In our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families. We not, might not shy away from them, but that we might press the truth forward. That men might only be ignorant because they choose to, not because they had no access. Lord, help us to give them that access to your truth. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.